success and clinical relevance in neuroendocrine tumors and hopefully soon also in prostate cancer, we're going to see way more research and that's going to lead to more effective therapies uh, for many patients. So I'm very optimistic. Welcome to this episode of Tetragnostic Talks podcast. My name is Gustav Vidar and together with me in the studio I have the fantastic Annette Andrian. Welcome Annette. Thank you so much Gustav. This is a pleasure. How are you today? I'm fine. And you? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, today we have a new guest. Who is the guest today? Germo Gerik. And who is Germo? He is, as I just realized, the medical officer at AAA. I thought he was the former global head of research and development at AAA. So really interesting person. Yeah, we need to ask him what the difference is. Uh, I think that he's an interesting guy because today I think we need to talk a little bit about, about the future of diagnostic. If someone in the world should know the next step for, for diagnostic, it should be Germo. Indeed. Take it away. In five to ten years from now, we're going to use theragnostics predominantly in combination with other therapies. Why? Because this may be the new way to treat cancer. Germo Gerica is Chief Medical Officer at AAA, former Head of Research and Development, a medical doctor who's been working in healthcare industry for many years, a true expert in the field of theragnostics, and our guest in this episode of Theragnostic Talks. Welcome, Guillermo Gerick, to our podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, you are in Basel in Switzerland today? Yes, we're working out of Basel and Geneva. As you know, AAA has been acquired by Novartis a couple of years ago and is still operating as a semi-independent unit to consolidate all the radioligand activities under the Novartis umbrella. So tell us about your day so far, or it's in the morning actually. What what what's our plan for us today? Well, still early days. Um, we're obviously working feverishly to get the data together from the vision study that uh, reported out a couple of weeks ago, and uh, preparing for the submission to regulatory authorities and uh, medical presentations. So that's a big uh, task right now, and then. We're also very busy with uh, interactions with investigators to just further the science of radioligand. Wow, that's very important work. And <clears throat> talking about the vision study, what can you share some uh, information now on this? Well, unfortunately, not much because, you know, the spiel, uh, it goes to the major medical meetings. And we're obviously very excited, uh, as you know, the both endpoints, the progression-free survival and the overall survival have been met. Um, and we're really looking forward to presenting these data and discussing them with the scientific community uh, and then take it to the regulators. Mm. Wow. Right. Great. So we need to wait some weeks more. Yeah, some weeks unfortunately, more. Yeah. I can't spill the beans here. Apologies mm. for that. 
The, 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 uh, the signal is really positive according to the press release we saw some weeks ago. So very promising. Looking forward to that. And um, I'm from when I met you for the first time, you were Global Head of Research and Development at AAA. And now I just realized you are Medical Officer at tri- AAA. What is the difference? So I've always held uh, the title of Chief Medical Officer, but more recently we decided to integrate the operations into the larger Novartis context. As you know, we're launching two major lifecycle management studies for the PSMA program in pre-taxane and hormone-sensitive setting. And to really leverage the muscle of Novartis, the organizational capabilities of the mothership, um, the organization decided to fully integrate the operations for the early discovery research, for early clinical development, and full development into the respective functions of Novartis, which leaves AAA with uh, production, technical research and development, medical affairs, and uh, commercial operations. And obviously, that also needs some medical guidance and strategy, and that's what I'm focusing on right now. What do you think is the next big thing around the corner when talking about the teragnostic? Uh, we have been successful in the Netter 1 uh, for never endocrine tumors, and we now uh, we just talk a little bit about the vision trial for prostate cancer. Uh, if you are looking in the future, what is the next step for, for teragnostics? Yeah, so maybe we take a little step back and, and look into the history. Uh, Serenostics has been around for a long time. When you think of iodine treatment uh, of thyroid cancer, we had some early forays into other tumor types in the early 2000s. They weren't super successful in in the commercial numbers, but I think they blasted the trail for nuclear medicine as a therapeutic uh, option. With the Netter one trial being so successful and the theranostic pairing, AAA was able to address some of the challenges in terms of providing a final product in GMP quality and um, really pairing the imaging diagnostic with the therapeutic. But let's face it, neuroendocrine tumors is a rare disease. Few centers are really treating these patients. So we hope that with the potential approval of uh, PSMA-directed therapies and imaging diagnostics, we can see a true renaissance of theranostics and nuclear medicine as a therapeutic discipline uh, in the the field of uh, oncology. We're obviously very excited uh, to see the scientific data will have to translate that into uh, proper patient flow, proper education of the various stakeholders. And also, I think capacity has to be built in order to treat patients with uh, prostate cancer effectively. You are mentioning... Yes, it's very important. And uh, you are mentioning now teragnostics, and, uh, but also you can read about um, radio ligand therapy. What is, I mean, how is the strategy from uh, AAA? Is it including imaging therapy and imaging or what is the way forward? 
So one of the fascinating aspects of the radioligand therapy is that it is a phenotypic molecular targeted therapy. So we can identify patients with the optimum likelihood to respond to therapy with the radioligand imaging as a diagnostic uh, tool. And that sets us apart from many other therapeutic options where you don't have the same level of detail. I mean, we can tell whether some or all of the lesions are expected to bind the radioligand therapy and thus be um, exposed to the radiation therapy. That doesn't automatically say that all these lesions are going to respond, but at least we can provide spatial resolution where many of the molecular biomarkers only give you a global assessment of uh, the status, whether it's uh, liquid biopsies, whether it's uh, individual uh, solid tissue biopsies. You only get either a snapshot of an individual lesion or you get some of all parts uh, assessment of the tumor. So from my perspective, the radioligand imaging is going to remain a critical step towards effective radioligand therapy. We'll see more radioligand imaging uh, that goes beyond patient selection, because I think it is a very important and powerful diagnostic tool when you think, for instance, uh, let's stick to prostate cancer biochemical recurrence. It will make a difference in therapeutic management, whether uh, it's a local recurrence or a distant recurrence. And we've seen in the early assessments uh, that the radioligand imaging PET diagnostics are way more sensitive than classic CT and bone scan. So I think beyond patient selection for radioligand therapy, radioligand imaging is also going to see a renaissance and significant expansion. We'll see new isotopes, we'll see new tracers, and I'm very excited uh, to see that uh, science evolve uh, around the radioligand imaging and therapy, and ideally combined as a theranostic. And Germo, when you describe both the diagnosis, diagnostics and the therapy, it's really promising. It looks, it sounds so interesting for the future. Then I also wonder, I mean, this one fits all with uh, four or six doses with a, a different uh, specific difference in time and also the, the concentration. What is your view on that? Yes, I think that's a very important question. And I believe long term, we're going to see patient individual dosing, both in terms of individual dose and schedule and number of cycles. Um, in the short term, I'm a strong believer that the solution we have right now, where most of the radioligand therapies are flat dose and number of cycles in a very prescriptive way, are a good choice, considering the trade-off between burden to patients, burden to the individual hospitals and the, the setup that we need to have an accurate dosimetry, and to the other factors that influence the benefit risk. When we look at the chain and the contributing factors 
between the hardware we use, the software that we use for image acquisition, the software and the individuals uh, doing the image interpretation and dosimetry analysis, uh, there is already a lot of variability. We need two to three time points all the way out to 48 or 72 hours to have an accurate individual dosimetry. And that's a big burden to the uh, patient who has to either come back or stay in the hospital, but also to the system. And lastly, when we look at the available data for neuroendocrine tumors, for instance, the correlation between dosimetry and efficacy is not very convincing. There is some correlation, but it's not strong. So there are probably other factors like patient individual factors, uh, radiation sensitivity of the tumor, and um, individual response characteristics, potentially concomitant therapies and what have you, that contribute to the link between the dose we get into the tumor and the efficacy. We'll see how that works for other tumor types. Uh, I believe for prostate, there's probably a bit better correlation between effective dose to the lesion and response. We'll see how that works for other isotopes. Uh, if we go to alpha therapy, dosimetry may not be so easy. Uh, in the meantime, I would say we have a very good solution and the clinical data demonstrate benefits. So let's use what we have and do more research to get to better outcomes longer term. Going back a little bit to the future, what can you see for the future? Can you tell us something about the future for diagnostics? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think we're, <laughs> the future is going to be bright for radioligand therapies. Um, we have seen a large number of tumor types uh, specific epitopes that have been tried and tested with small molecule drug conjugates, uh, antibody drug conjugates, and other therapeutic options. Some of them successful, some of them not so successful. So we have a big pool of options to consider for radioligand therapies. And I believe it's a much easier approach compared with a small molecule drug conjugate or antibody drug conjugate. We don't need a downstream efficacy of the individual binding of the ligand to the epitope. So we can also explore non-tumor-specific epitopes and targets. And FAP, the fibroblast activation protein, is a first example where it's not on the tumor necessarily. It can also be on tumor-associated stromal cells. We may be able to target extracellular matrix if it's specific enough to the tumor. So I think there, there are plenty of options to find new targets for radioligand therapies. I believe we are seeing a renaissance of isotope research. When you look at the forays into alpha therapy, when you look into uh, Auger electrons as potential uh, very targeted uh, radiation, to the nuclear space. I'm very excited about uh, some of these new uh, isotopes. Uh, you look at terbium versus lutetium when you look at uh, various well-known iodine isotopes that could provide very targeted uh, therapy through the Auger electron emission. Uh, so I believe with the big support from the 
success and clinical relevance in neuroendocrine tumors and hopefully soon also in prostate cancer, we're going to see way more research and that's going to lead to more effective therapies uh, for many patients. So I'm very optimistic. Sounds great in these times, I must say. Yeah. Uh, what do you think uh, about combination of therapies? Uh, could we combine this teragnostic approach with uh, like radiosensitizers or with uh, immunocell therapies in the future? What? Yes, I agree. That's another big area of research, and we're going to see some very exciting results in the not too distant future. So far, we've only seen anecdotal success of these combinations. Um, I started out not really being super enthusiastic about the radio sensitizers because I believe at first they will only shift the therapeutic window because if they're not discriminative affecting the tumor, they also target the radiosensitive uh, non-tumor targets in, in a similar way. So hopefully we'll find some radiosensitizers that are not affecting the bone marrow, are not affecting the kidney, are not affecting other sensitive organs, but focus really that radiosensitization on the tumor. And then I think there's a great future for radiosensitizing uh, elements. I believe in combination therapy when it comes to mechanistically combining radioligand therapy that is primarily but not exclusively DNA damaging with DNA damage repair targeting uh, medicines. So whether it's PARP inhibitors, ATM, ATR, or I think there's, there's a big amount of research going into DNA damage repair, and that's going to be a very interesting area of combination. You already mentioned the immunotherapies. Uh, and I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll soon understand how to combine radioligand therapy with immunotherapy. So far, we have few anecdotal successes, but no real breakthrough. Frankly, I don't understand. I don't know if it is low-dose radiation to immune-competent cells, the reprogramming of macrophages that really lays the foundation for a combination therapy, whether it's damage of tumor cells and exposing uh, neoantigens that then drive the afferent immune uh, system, or whether it's uh, simply making tumor tissue more available to immunotherapies by opening tight junctions, you know, damage to the tumor. So our mechanistic understanding of how these therapies can be combined is still, I would say, in its infancy. And lots of things are going to happen over the next few years. Uh, I expect that five to 10 years from now, we are going to use radioligand therapies predominantly in combination and sequence with other therapies, whether it's specific uh, chemotherapies, targeted therapies, immunotherapies, or DNA damage repair targeting therapies. I think that's to be seen, but I expect a very bright future for those combination therapies. AAA starting out the revolution, that's my word, and that was what we had in, as our introduction you did that by uh, getting this net one study together and now also the vision study. What do you see the three most important things that AAA can add 
to make this happen, what we have been talking about now? What are the three things? So again, maybe looking back a little bit, radioligand therapies have been largely advanced in the academic space. And frankly, AAA is one of the few companies that took the risk and were bold enough to take it on and run a global clinical study, a proper phase three study. I believe we're going to see more of those. So putting the muscle and the rigor of pharmaceutical companies to the field of radioligand therapies will advance the field. Whether it's AAA Novartis or other companies, I think that's going to be a big drive for future success of radioligand therapies. The other element is the central production and consistent quality that uh, AAA and other pharmaceutical companies can bring to the table here, where it is important to have a reliable, consistent quality at the individual patient level, not only at select advanced centers that have these capabilities, but for a broader community-based and smaller hospital setting. Exciting. Good. Promising for the future. And and you mentioned this phase three studies, and there's a lot of discussion on, I mean, is that a successful way to, to get um, these treatments, uh, access, the patient access to these treatments? Yeah. From my perspective, radioligand therapies have a unique discovery and development profile uh, because there is so much that can be done in early development, in early translational research, different from small molecules or antibodies where a lot has to be tested in large clinical trials. We can decipher the clinical benefit and risk profile based on the early dosimetry results in small patient groups, small patient cohorts. That's a unique advantage of radioligand therapies. And I believe we're going to see way more of these small, well-conducted trials, not just individual patients being treated by academic centers and then retrospective pooling, but prospectively well-designed trials in a phase zero, phase one setting with proper dosimetry and full assessment of short and long-term benefit and risk. And based on these small studies, I would expect that we are then able to jump into pivotal studies. And depending on the indication, depending on the benefit risk profile, depending on the unmet medical need, those could be single-arm phase two studies in situations where there is no option available and we expect major benefit in oncology. It could be large randomized phase three studies against, against standard of care or in combination with standard of care where we expect an incremental benefit uh, to the patient. Do they need faith? You know, you know the authorities. Do they need like FDA and European medical agency? Do they need phase three data? Do they need uh, overall survival data to to approve new drugs? Or so the regulatory framework applies to all drugs, and I would expect that radioligand therapies are going to be treated no different in principle. 
we're, we're seeing a lot of discussion right now about the fundamentals of how drugs are being developed and how they can be used after approval. I would expect that over time, we're going to see more flexibility and a more gradual release into the wild, if you will, of, of new drugs. And radioligands are somewhere stuck in the middle between small molecules and biologics. On one side, most of them are currently produced synthetically, like small molecules, but in a way they behave clinically more like large molecules. You can make changes to the molecule, de facto creating a new molecular entity, but in real life that change is not really affecting the biodistribution and thus efficacy and safety of the compound. And we'll need regulatory frameworks that allow also the intellectual property to be protected in an effective way. Because without that, there will be no incentive to develop new drugs. If anybody can go and just do a fast follower compound with very low clinical development risk, uh, that will destroy the industry. Uh, that we've seen in the past with other therapeutic options. If there is no incentive to innovate, uh, that will be a, a big um, dampening effect uh, on innovation. What about uh, real-world data? What is the future of real-world data? So my view on real-world data is that they are as good as the data that are being collected, and they usually require large numbers. Uh, looking back at some other therapeutic areas, we've seen a lot of trials and tribulations with real-world data. Unfortunately, the quality of our real-world data is quite mixed. Um, obviously, uh, Scandinavian countries have a big advantage here with the uh, national healthcare systems and good data capture. So that, I think, is a big asset. The other side that we need is significant numbers of patients in order to account for variability. In a controlled setting of a clinical trial, you randomize and therefore are pretty sure that both arms have the same makeup of the patient population. In a real-world evidence, you don't have that. And for instance, in neuroendocrine tumors, we have seen how different individual populations can be when you compare clinical trials. So there's always a big caveat just going for uncontrolled data and taking uh, that into account for the uh, approval. On the other hand, as I said earlier, I believe that we're going to see a, a more gray in the middle uh, of early development and access to patients and full approval. So I expect that we're going to see more high quality real world data in what is more likely to be similar to clinical trial setting, where we, we have a more structured data capture, where we have more oversight on the quality of the data and how they come into the database uh, relative to what we're currently doing. Who should run the trials uh, for these new agnostic drugs? Is it the industry or academia, or should we should academia and industry co cooperate? 
Well, ideally, we find effective ways of collaboration. We've seen great investigator-initiated trials. Uh, we've seen great collaborative group trials with or without support from industry, and we have seen very good industry-sponsored trials. We need all of those, and ideally, we can collaborate to find the best solution, in a way, horses for courses. So in the early exploration phase, I see great value in single-center investigator-initiated trials. When it comes to large multinational trials for approval and regulatory review, the industry will continue to play a major role. So I, I think there's, a, there's so much research to be done. Hopefully now with the vision being positive, we'll also get the funding. And I'm not talking only about kind of within AAA or Novartis, but also, you know, venture capital is going to uh, jump on the bandwagon. And uh, I, I think uh, academic funding is going to uh, get a shot in the arm with these positive results. So we'll, we'll see a, a true renaissance of radioligand therapy. Gemma, you have a, an impressive background and experience in this field of immunology and oncology. Uh, I mean, since the early 1990, what is it now? Yes. Uh, what has been driving you? I mean, why did you end up here? Um, this is an interesting question. I've always wanted to make a difference and then serendipity took its uh, toll um, moving from academic research into consulting and back into industry um, sometimes it was pure luck to be at the right time at the right place uh, and get a new challenge the opportunity to lead the research and development <clears throat> for the radio ligand program uh, was probably the most fascinating uh, I've seen in, in my lifetime. And I, I hope I can continue to drive innovation for patients with radioligand therapies in the future. Who do you sh think should receive the Nobel Prize for their efforts in diagnostics? Well, I mean, radioligand therapies go back, or radiation therapy goes back more than 100 years now. And... I don't think that there was one single individual. I think it's been a great team effort, a great grassroots effort in many ways to advance the science. Uh, it's not like with other therapeutic options where we've seen this one spark of innovation that really led to an avalanche of scientific discovery. It's really been and still is a very hard and tedious uh, work to understand how we can harness radioligand therapies for the benefit of patients. So good question. I don't have a good answer. <laughs> okay. It was a good uh, answer. Yes, it was a good answer. Um, who do you think we should invite? Can you recommend us uh, to invite someone to the podcast? So first, I think it's a very commendable effort to have these podcasts and uh, bring radioligand therapies to a larger audience. So thank you for inviting me. Uh, thank you for inviting great scientists. I would suggest that you invite more of those early pioneers of radioligand therapies and get their individual experience. We have still so much to learn from those pioneers. 
Um, I think there's going to be a lot of technical evolution. So inviting somebody from the more technical side, from the isotope research could also be of interest. Personally, for me, that would be very interesting. And I think also we should uh, never underestimate the patient perspective. Um, and we have to tailor our treatments to the individual needs of patients. There is still quite some apprehension and reservation when it comes to uh, radiation in general and radiation therapy or radioligand therapy in particular. So helping us to understand how we can address these concerns and how patients understand and live through their experience can also help advance the field quite a bit. Yeah. Very valid, uh, very good comment, I must say. Good recommendation. You could also talk to somebody who has an interest in or expertise in quality. Uh, one of the major issues kind of between local production versus centralized production, what are the standards that we need to make that option reliably available uh, to, to patients? So whether it's a radiation safety officer from a government agency, whether it's a uh, quality control officer from, a, from an agency, obviously there are distinct differences, right? A normal drug has a shelf life of several months. And if you have bacterial contamination at production, that can grow and fester, right? With radioligands, you don't have that because it's usually used within a couple of days. Um, these subtle differences are not yet reflected in specific regulation. How are we going to see that evolve? So I think there, there are a lot of non-clinical attributes that need to work out, work not only on the clinical studies, but also on the way we deliver uh, whether we need to keep patients in hospital and for how long, whether we can move to outpatient therapies um, and, and all these things, right? Great. Thank you, Germo, for today. And thank you for your valuable insights in the field of diagnostic. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the podcast. Yes, Annette, that was Germo Gerick. And uh, we got some valuable insights about the future of terragnostic. What do you think? Very promising. And, and I, I just uh, more and more realized he's the right guy on the position at AAA moving forward yes. for the future, securing yes. yeah. a positive and bright future for terragnostics. It's really interesting talking about uh, dosimetry and that maybe we not have the technology yet but maybe we will have the technology and the software in the future to, to really make this proper dosimetry and personalized treatment of the patients. Uh, and also uh, the combination of treatment to personalize the treatment for patients, combina the combination of different therapies. Uh, I, th I think that's, that's a really interesting and promising future. Yeah, and his uh, insights on phase three studies moving forward when it comes to diagnostics, where really diagnostic has a, a great benefit to find the right patients.
Yeah, and the value of phase one and phase two trials, not only the phase three trials, and I think he aligns a lot of what what Rod Hicks said in in in, in the earlier podcast with Rod. Yeah. Yeah. Good day. Very very good. Yes. So something more on it? No. What do you think? No. Happy so far. Maybe it's time to close for the podcast for today. If you want to reach out to us, please visit our LinkedIn side or just send us an email, podcast at samnordic.se, podcast at samnordic.se. Thank you for today, Annette. Bye. Stay tuned. Stay safe. Bye.